Hello, Anticulture listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the show. Today, we're speaking with writer, activist, and perhaps most well-known blogger, Mike Morrison of Mike's Blogity Blog here in Calgary. For those tuning in for the first time, my name is Josiah Sinanen, and I am your culturally ambiguous and culturally mixed host. This show explores individuals and stories that may challenge the boxes you would put them in. My goal in all of my discussions is to change the way we look at those around us by listening, empathizing, and seeking to understand. If there's one thing I learned about being the kind of guy who's hard to pin down with any clean category or stereotype, it's that most people are the same way. Their outward identifiers, jobs, and affiliations don't necessarily define them. Rather, it's their experiences, understandings, and beliefs that do much more of the talking. And I want us all to start taking the time to tackle those aspects of each other. Mike Morrison's well-known and heavily read blog is a cherished corner of the internet. It has been running for nearly 12 years now and has garnered some notable traction on a local and national level. With over 54,000 unique and regular readers, Mike's Bloggity Blog has become a source of travel stories, social media scoops, local and national news, celebrity interviews, and contests. Mike and I got to chat about his blog and what he's learned about Canadian culture along the way. We also talk about being a part of the LGBTQ community here in Alberta and how he navigated his journey with identity and his personal culture. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a stereotype of conservatism in Alberta, and a lot of it is true, unfortunately. But if I think of the 15 years since I moved there, there's maybe been two or three times that I've felt crappy about being a gay person in Alberta in terms of someone saying something to me or something like that. So definitely people getting out there and saying that it's a comfortable place to live and it's safe and stuff like that is really important. Before we dive in with Mike, I wanted to take a moment to mention the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Anticulture is also a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown and community supported. On the network, you can find great shows like one of my other favorites, That's a Thing which outlines a conversation with a mother and daughter about all things trendy. I always laugh at this show as daughter Elizabeth tries to teach her mom about what's exactly going on with the teenager world. It's an enjoyable listen every time, and you can find it, my show, and other Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. And now, Mike Morrison. Why don't we just dive right in and start by maybe just giving us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and how you're known and kind of something we like to do on the show is talk about our identifiers as well. So I'm curious, what are some choice identifiers you would label yourself with? I'll start off with a really fast story. I actually hired a career counselor a few months ago, a career coach to sort of help me come up with sort of an elevator pitch. So when people ask me those questions you just asked me, I don't ramble on for 10 minutes because <laughs> I, everything I do changes basically by the hour. I do lots of different things. And so one of the exercises she had me do was 
on my personal Facebook, make a Google survey and ask the people in my network, like what they think my job title is, what they would hire me for. And like 150 people filled it out. And I said it was anonymous. It was the most confusing thing. We got like 60 answers, honestly, like 60 different things. I brought it back to her and she's like, well, that wasn't helpful at all. So (laughs) (laughs) probably people know me for sort of my content on Mike's blog and he blog the blog, but then the subsidiaries, you know, the Twitter account and Instagram account and things like that. I was a columnist for a Metro newspaper for six years. That's how some people know me. And then I also run a series of digital marketing conferences across the country, uh, Social West in Calgary being the biggest one, actually. It's actually the largest in Canada, the largest digital marketing conference in Canada. But with the world being on hold right now, we switched to Social at Home. Uh, We're actually planning, we'll have done three by March and we have about 500 people come to that. And and then, yeah, there's just a whole bunch of other things tossed in there too. Yeah, that's amazing. So essentially, you're not sure who you are and your audience isn't sure who you are. No, I know. I remember I was talking to someone at a networking event like two years ago and I was saying something about being controversial on Twitter. She's like, oh, are you controversial? Like, She's like, I only follow you on Instagram where I'm not, where I just post <laughs> photos. And I was like, oh, wow, I've created like split identities with people. Like if sometimes in doing interviews, I'm called like Mike Morrison's a controversial blogger on Twitter. And I'm like, what? I don't like my <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of become a bit of a pattern where people are a little different on each social platform. So that's kind of funny because it's almost like you can pick and choose your public persona, which I guess makes sense. In a way, yeah. I mean, I think too, the messaging, like I don't think anyone is really going to Instagram to like hear about politics or social issues, necessary, specific social issues, I should say, that, you know, more, more leaning political wise kind of thing where I tend to talk about politics a lot on Twitter and Instagram. As a guy, I'm pretty lucky. As a white guy, I'm pretty lucky because no one really says anything about my looks on Instagram or anything like that. So it's a much more of a safer place for me to just like no one's ever like, that's a crappy photo of a mountain. I hate you. I'm like, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a little more safe. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I am very excited to jump into talking about Mike's bloggity blog. I'm a born and raised Calgarian. And for me, it's kind of like this staple corner of the internet which I think is amazing that you've built something like that. So how did you get started with this blog? What was kind of the origin story? So I moved to Calgary right after I graduated university in 2005. This was before the internet, not before the internet, but before like Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And so I really didn't know that many people in Calgary and spent a lot of time alone in my basement apartment and mission on my twin bed. And I sort of always loved writing as a kid, but sort of got away from it. And so the internet blogger live journal sort of gave me a chance to write again. And people sort of honestly just started reading it. And because this was at a time where like media networks were like, we need to incorporate bloggers, we need bloggers. And there wasn't that many at the time. And I'm not discounting what I was doing, but definitely was on sort of the ground floor of people looking for bloggers and things like that. And because I love pop culture and I love media and I love television and stuff like that, I was able to sort of go on shows and kind of know what they're looking for. Like I wasn't super nervous. I was a theater kid growing up and stuff like that. And so it sort of was just all these stars aligning to 
give me these really cool opportunities. And from there, they sort of just kept growing. And as things went a bit more national, you know, having, you know, every network or every newspaper always needs different voices from different parts of the country. And so here I was with a pretty okay audience in Calgary, which sort of allowed me to parlay that into different, you know, opportunities across the country. If I had a tagline, it's the internet is the great equalizer. You know, I think being a short, bald, gay guy, there's honestly not a ton of traditional media opportunities for me. There's, you know, if you look at eTalk, ET Canada, or really any show in Canada, there's very few queer voices. And those queer voices tend to be quite good looking and stuff like that. And so I'm not being hard on myself. I, you know, I know what I look like. And so the internet to me, and this is why it's been so successful for so many people, is all I have to do is curate an audience of people who think I'm interesting. I don't need to appeal to the networks, to, you know, someone in a skyscraper somewhere. It's finding enough people who find what I'm saying to be interesting. And so it's given me and so many people a chance that we never would have been given 25 years ago. What was involved in the choice in moving to Alberta? What kind of drew you to the province? At that time, it was sort of, honestly, it was sort of what you did. Like in New Brunswick, it was a tougher job market and there wasn't a ton of, when you looked down your career path, it was very limited. I think the growth of the internet and things like that have definitely changed the East Coast and what it means to live in those Atlantic provinces. And so it was like, I would see a Fredertonian almost every day when I lived in Calgary, you know, those 15 years in Calgary, you would see there's so many of us there. And so either they went to Korea to teach English or they went to Calgary and then some went, lots went to Toronto too, but I definitely sort of just got on the convoy as everybody else and ended up there. I actually joke a lot that I don't fully remember those decisions, but I always knew I was leaving. Like it was never from the second I could talk about what happened after school, I was talking about leaving Fredericton. And I love Fredericton, but I just knew that I wanted to try living different places and things like that. Yeah. And I'm curious, as someone from the East Coast, I know that kind of outside of the province and even outside of Calgary, there is a reputation of Alberta being a more closed-minded province. So did you have any fear or anticipation or anxiety moving here as a member of the LGBTQ community? I was very naive to the ways of the world when I moved. Um, so I wasn't really thinking about that. And I mean, this is a whole other podcast, but like I never went to sex ed or anything like that. So I came out later in life. I had no idea what people were doing. I was just doing my own little thing. Uh, so I wasn't necessarily ner nervous about that, but definitely like working in the media in Calgary, it was always in Alberta, sort of when I'd go to Toronto or Vancouver, there was always those questions like, how are you doing? How are you handling that kind of thing? But yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't super on my radar then for sure. Yeah, which is really cool because I feel like in some ways people might look at your blog and and see the large Alberta readership and say that, okay, there actually is space for queer people in Alberta to make an impact and to have a voice. When I started doing more activism things, and of course, there's countless LGBTQ activists in Alberta and Calgary before me, but for me, I sort of really started getting political around gay straight alliances when the government was removing them from schools and placing all these barricades from to prevent students from creating them and stuff like that. I was, I had left my last full-time job. I was actually a producer at breakfast television and I had left that to work on my company full-time. So I didn't have those sort of shackles of having 
to worry about getting fired or a boss getting mad at me for saying something about the government or whatever. But I definitely think one of the reasons my voice was so loud was that there weren't very many LGBTQ people that felt comfortable and didn't have anything to lose in a way, you know, unfortunately sometimes people are scared because the government, someone at the government might email someone at their office and you don't know ties or you don't know where money comes from or, you know, whatever kind of thing. And so for me, I sort of made up in my head that the government had a hard time pinning anything on me because I wasn't responsible for anything besides my own company. So my company is based on people liking my product. So unless they wanted to do a campaign like of like, don't support Mike Morrison, which obviously wouldn't go very well. It was hard. And so for media wise, like they always had someone to talk to and I would say yes to every interview. And luckily over the years, you know, there's definitely some time, you know, asking me about trans issues or issues that didn't necessarily pertain to me. You know, now that now I find in Calgary and Alberta, there's so many queer activists or people that will talk about those issues. And so it's definitely been great to see the media have more and more people to talk to and those voices be louder. And also, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a stereotype of conservatism in Alberta. And I mean, a lot of it is true, unfortunately. But if I think of the 15 years since I moved there, there's maybe been two or three times that I have felt crappy about being a gay person in Alberta in terms of someone saying something to me or something like that. So definitely people getting out there and, you know, saying it's a comfortable place to live and it's safe and stuff like that is really important. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's really encouraging to hear that kind of as time progressed, you did get more opportunities and the media did want to hear from you. And that's good to hear, especially since you were an independent creator, that that wasn't a barrier for you. And I really like what you said, that there wasn't anything anyone could pin on you because you kind of blazed your own trail, which is amazing. I feel like that's a very unique story. I mean, I'm definitely stubborn. Like I'm my father's son for sure. <laughs> and I think maybe because like I, ca- I came by it so organically. So I, if you if I look back at the 15 years of doing stuff, it just felt like the leap of 2005 to 2020 in terms of activism or, or media is a giant leap. But if you look at it sort of over the 15 years, they're really small steps. But I definitely like rarely said no to anything opportunity wise, because I didn't want to say no in case they'd ever asked me again. So I was sort of always omnipresent and just around everywhere. And no, the media knew that they could call me anytime and I would do something, I would make myself available. But then also just creating my own content because I found success slowly. Like there was no way you could conceive that one would make money on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook back then. I found I'm fortunate enough to have found my success without wanting that goal of money. So I I wasn't in such a hurry and I was able to curate this audience that likes me and knows me and knows who I am and stuff like that without having this pressure of like, okay, I'm going to start an Instagram account in 2021 and I need to be making money by the end of the year because X, Y, Z, I didn't have that pressure. So I I feel fortunate. You know, I, I do talk about sort of being on the ground floor in some aspects, not necessarily luck, but being at a place where it was easier. I think it would be hard for someone to replicate what I'm doing now and starting today. I just really own who I am. Like I don't have pretenses of, I 
joke a lot with like the food writers. Like I'm not a food writer. I'm not all food. I love all food unabashedly. All wine tastes the same to me. So, you know, <laughs> you know and by yeah. that it's delicious, you know, so people know, like you'll never see me being like, oh, I really like this, whatever. I can't even describe wine. And so the audience knows that what they see is what they get with me. And I think that sort of helped me specifically resonate because I often try it when I talk to people who work in this field, there's more regular people like me than there are beautiful people taking stunning shots on top of mountaintops while eating on a Hudson Bay blanket. It's actually a really interesting, I think, shift that's happening because I feel like when you really look at things and how the trends tend to go, I think the influencer window is quite small. I think the long-term solution is being authentic and people knowing what to expect when they come into interaction with you. And I think you're right. It is, you're, uh, you're fortunate to have started kind of from ground zero with the blog, but I think that you offer a space that feels safe to people and it's kind of refreshing after kind of in a post influencer world. And I think that just happens when people grow up and consume content differently. But I think maintaining consistency and being authentic is like a really, some really good qualities to hang on to. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, to be able to evolve is something really, really important when you're sort of own your own business. And, you know, I was talking to someone just the other day who's thinking of going out on his own and he's like, I want to do this, this, this. He sort of listed exactly what he wanted to do. And I always said, if you're doing any of those things a year from now, I'll be shocked because you sort of <laughs> just like take the, when you first start or whatever, you just sort of take the opportunities. Like I left breakfast television and I was like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write long form magazine articles. And like I pitched a few and I hate the pitching process and writers deserve, they have so much patience and you pitch and you don't hear anything for six weeks. And then they write back and they say no. So you just wasted six weeks or they say yes and it here's $20. So you just wasted six weeks. And so I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. And I just constantly am evolving to like, in a way, like people sort of decide my career for me. And so I have to be someone that I think people want to work with or want to follow or want to. And also if like, this helps from starting so early, like, I don't take it seriously at all. Like I, it's, I think about it, but I had an employee for a year and a half, unfortunately, before the pandemic came uh, and she was so great. And she knew so much more about Instagram strategy and Twitter strategy than me. She's the smartest person I know. And she was always baffled at how little I pay attention to any of them in terms of analytics or time I post or I don't use hashtags. I remember once I was doing an interview with something and the person asked how many followers I had. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And she like yelled it from the other room. Like she knew, (laughs) like, I'm not saying I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't care at all. Like every now and then I'll have a peek, but It's definitely not part of my strategy of like, you know, when you see tweets being like, oh, I lost 20 followers or whatever. Like I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't tell you for the life of me. It's a silly thing. Like what I'm doing as a career is, is sort of silly and really fortunate. And so you have to appreciate that it's silly if you take it too seriously. I I don't know how long your trajectory is career wise. Definitely. I think actually, it's amazing that you're saying these things, because I feel like you're such a good fit for this show and being a guest, just because what you're actually doing is, essentially, you're just extending your personality and who you are into the world. And that is reverberating back to you, which is really neat. Because it's like, it's, it's basically this culture and this thing that you created around yourself, which I really think is cool. Thanks. Yeah. I don't think anyone is sitting at home being like, I want to be like Mike, which I think is maybe what 
some people think leads to success. I'd like to think that people are are saying, if Mike can do it, then so can I, whether it's going canoeing down a crazy river or staying at a neat, a neat experience or whatever. Like, I do think I'm just a normal person, like maybe I'm more comfortable in front of the camera or whatever than some people. But for the most part, I'm a regular person. My income is regular. Like I went to a university like most people do, you know, like there's nothing really super unique about me. I'm making myself sound like I don't like myself, but like, I just mean like, (laughs) but there's more people like me. And so for anyone who wants to sort of follow any part of my trajectory, honestly, being yourself, just owning who you are. One of my campaigns I work with the most is with McDonald's. And that came from me just constantly tweeting about McDonald's. Like I would always hold a staff party for my company of one, like this is before I had an employee (laughs) at McDonald's and I'd I'd post like as if I was having a full staff party there and things like that. And McDonald's reached out and was like, who's paying you? And I was like, no, and I just like McDonald's. And that started this relationship. But like, it's not strategic at all, but I see that it goes against sort of this influencer norm where you, you're supposed to only talk about the fanciest food and take beautiful photos of food and stuff like that, where, I, like I said, I love food and all that, but I have to eat gluten-free now. But I can, I can work my way through a McDonald's menu gluten-free, no problem. <laughs> uh, but like just I think that people are like, oh, yeah, that, I do like doing that at McDonald's or I do like doing whatever kind of thing. And so... I guess finding success by just being myself early on has really helped me not waver too much in terms of feeling like I have to be something for someone else. What kind of things are covered on your blog? What are some of your favorite interviews you've done? What do you love about the things you curate on Mike's Bloggedy blog? The blog's a bit slow right now because the conference, like saving my company through the pandemic has definitely taken center stage and surviving my all my conferences were wiped out and all that stuff so that's definitely been the priority but it's on my 2021 goal is like I actually legitimately love writing it's therapeutic for me I enjoy it so much and I want to get back to writing more because that's actually just emailed someone the other day I had an idea for a tv show a fictional tv show for like I've I've been thinking about it probably for eight years And I emailed a TV writer that I know and like, and I just said, I have an idea. Will you give me enough feedback that encourages me to write it and stuff like that? So he's looking at it, but writing is, so that's the blog like started, like, I don't know why, like I literally had nothing to do. So I challenged myself to write it every day. And so I wrote it every day, I think for like eight or nine years, I think like I'd have to go back and look, but every day my brain was just like constantly scanning for things to write. And it focused on Canadian entertainment. So it's so funny. Like I was telling someone recently, I was like, oh yeah, I never really write about my personal life. And then I ended up on older pages of the blog and I like totally was just talking about going to work at the Sheridan and like people I met at work and like moving. And I was like, oh, I don't really remember writing any of this stuff. Like it really was like a journal at the beginning, but I didn't really remember that. But definitely when I sort of focused on Canadian entertainment, like a positive aspect of it, that was a big game changer for me because at the time and maybe even now there's so few outlets just writing about Canadian entertainment that you know the record labels the theater companies the actors the production companies all those things I was almost immediately added to all their lists because I was another media outlet for them to be writing about it and so 
people were really generous and I would make a point of going to Toronto like three or four times a year and I would email like any agency I knew and just like, hey, I, I, would, I, I would go to Toronto, honestly, have like 18 meetings in three days. I would have like a backpack with like different clothes in it. So like depending on who I was meeting, like I would change clothes and stuff like that. And I think for me, the big sort of break into the entertainment industry was the first time that Juno's in Calgary were like 2006. And I had a friend working on the press side of it. And like the blog was like a month old, two months old, like nothing. No, maybe old, older than that, but nothing, nothing to be worthy of being invited to cover the Junos. That was definitely a friend connection from music camp in junior high school. So like, you never know when your connections are gonna come back. But she got me, you know, in the backstage and like, I'm a kid, grew up in small town Fredericton and just dreamed of the entertainment industry my whole life. And all of a sudden I was backstage and seeing, you know, the biggest names in Canadian music, but also seeing all the, the VJs from Much Music were still around then. And, you know, the Campanelli's and, and like, they were saying hi to me and I was just like what is happening this is crazy but I would get like I remember I started at the back of the press room like the last row and like over 10 years by the end I was in the front row with the Globe and Mail and TV Guide and like the big ones because I would just ask questions all the time and when the winners come back and like it's it's a winner that of a really obscure award maybe or no one's ever heard of them they still come to the backstage in front of 50 press and they're still standing there and the you know the host would be like does anyone have any questions for them and most people wouldn't have questions because most people are writing just about the main winners and things like that so i would always ask a question because i just imagine how horrible it would be to have this the, probably the highlight of your career and then like no one know who you are or anything like that so that helped me work up and even i got to go on the red carpet more and more and that sort of led to opportunities and so i think like just like it was a ton of hard work but it was i couldn't believe that i was doing it like i was so lucky to be doing it I, it is like it was a dream of mine to do any of that stuff but i never it was never feasible like again that's to me what the internet did was give someone like me a chance that i would never get your question about sort of my most memorable interview. One was Dallas Green from City in Color. And I had met him a few different times. One time we were uh, trying to fly to St. John's for the Juno, St. John's, Newfoundland. And they were fogged out. And I was in one airport and his wife was in the airport with me. And my friend was with him in a different airport, but their phones had died. And so like, I get a call, basically it's Dallas Green being like, hey, it's Dallas Green. Do you see my wife anywhere? And I'm like, uh, let me like, let me go around and find her. And so like, so he had come to Calgary and I think maybe the next year. And I remember going on stage, like he was rehearsing and I, and I went on the side of stage and they're like, oh, Dallas, your last interview is here. And you, you could sort of just tell he wasn't in a mood to do it. And to me and he's like oh thank god it's you and i was like oh my god that's so cool yeah and we sat down and he basically went on you can still read it on the blog it still does really well because it was basically a 45 minute interview of him not wanting to perform anymore and he was just tired and he was saying like he's like i can write the most beautiful songs and then i go on stage and all people yell is like how hot i am or like take your shirt off or da, da, da. like he was so just that day was frustrated and I said, I was like, I can turn the recorder off. He's like, no, 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 I don't care. And so I wrote it all up and I sent it to his publicist. And I was like, do you want me to 
publish this. Like, if he's having a bad day, I don't want this to like live forever. I don't, it's not that important to me. And she's like, no, I talked to him and he's fine with it. And, you know, and then we went to a show that night and like every time someone yelled how hot he was, like, I was just like, oh God, he's going to snap. He's going to snap. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one was, I'd say I'm using Game Changer a lot, but like, I think my career is a lot of de- moments that are defined by like other people deciding something and giving me a new platform. And it was when Kelly Ripa was in uh, Banff and she did five episodes of live with Kelly in Banff and through the Junos and CTV, I had connections to get tickets and stuff like that. And there was a media call like two weeks before where like 20 media were on the same phone call with her. And we each got to ask one question kind of thing. And so I'm like, hi, I'm Mike from Mike's Bloggity Blog. And I'll say that too, actually, as I'm saying that every time I would say a Mike from Mike's Bloggity Blog, like at any event at the Junos or ever, it always got a laugh. And so that always got their attention kind of thing. Yeah. Anyways. So she's like, what'd you just say? And I was like, Mike's blogging blog. She's like, that's hilarious. And I asked a question and anyway, uh, it was fun. But then when she was in Banff, only two media outlets got one-on-one interviews with her and it was a radio, like a CTV radio station and me. And like, I wasn't a part of that. I don't know how that happened, but I was the second one. And again, I was waiting backstage after one of her shows and she's like, Oh, who's my interview with? And they're like, Oh, Mike Morrison, Mike's bloggy blog. And she's like, Mike's bloggy blogs here. Where's Mike's bloggy. And like the C's part of people. And we like have this great chat. And during this video interview, she says, she said like she loves Mike's bloggy like five times or something like that. And of course I know, she I know she doesn't read it. I know that and that's very <laughs> obvious, but it's the generosity of her saying that is something I've never forgotten because she knows what saying that does for me. So I've always tried to remember if I have any clout whatsoever is to try to pass it on because Kelly Ripa, and that was the thing definitely in Calgary media eyes definitely brought me to the next level was because it sure sounds like Kelly Ripa knows who I am. And it sure sounds like she reads my blog. And- That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So she's really fantastic. Well, I do want to ask in your years, and I know we could probably talk for hours. There's so many interesting things to ask you, but I am curious now that you've been in Calgary for a while, what does being a Calgarian mean to you? What are kind of the things that you pick up about the culture of the city that you've observed and kind of adopted? What I always say about Calgary is that it it gives everyone a shot. And I am a testament of that. And I'm not picking on Toronto at all. And I love Toronto. But when I see someone who's come from Toronto or a business come from Toronto, and they think that's going to carry them in Calgary, it rarely does. But you can come from Toronto and work really hard in Calgary and be super successful. But I think Calgary is a city where you can come, present yourself, say what your idea is. And as long as you don't screw people over, I do think it rewards you. And I mean, there's probably levels of privilege and things like that for sure. But no one ever asks you where you're from or who your parents are, how much money you have. I think in a way, like me carving out a pretty successful entertainment world, their platform in Calgary as a gay guy far away from the major cities is sort of proof of that. So it's definitely a place that the stereotypes are so hard sometimes too. You know, I remember I, I love the amazing race Canada and I try out every year and all that stuff. But I remember the first year they came, it was sponsored by Ford and in every city they were driving like Ford hybrids or electric cars and they land in Calgary and they're driving Ford F-150s. And I'm like, oh, like, you know, like it's like, it feels like there's so many people trying to not perpetuate those sort of big truck cowboy stereotypes, but it that's a hard 
nut to crack. And so that sort of stuff was a bit, is a bit frustrating sometimes, but like, I do think it gives everyone a shot and I think it doesn't get enough credit for what it is, like how I think downtown Calgary is the most beautiful downtown. Uh, It's the most bikeable. It's, you know, what's happening in Inglewood with the breweries and all that stuff. Like it's such an innovative city, but so much of the politics sucks up all the attention the politics of Alberta, regardless of what party is, it gets so much spotlight, I think more than other cities and other provinces, because it's always so wild, I think I don't know that so many people don't get a chance to see all the other things that are happening in Calgary. I'm thankful that you're kind of speaking up on behalf of the city, because I definitely agree. I think you could really build your reputation here. And so yeah, you're right. You're you're a prime example of that, which is really cool here. Yeah. I mean, Calgary's a, a city of a million people. That's not nothing. And I, you know, I think it, like Nordstrom's, the first store in Canada was, is in Calgary, uh, you know, and that's a silly example. But like, I when I heard that, I was like, oh, they must know something that maybe we don't about the city or maybe we don't appreciate. Or, you know, when the line scooters and stuff and car to go, we were the cities that use them the most in North America, I think, and even the world for the for car to go. And so there's so many cool things happening in Calgary. I think people who want to do events and things like that, like they, Calgary is sort of up for anything. If you want to present something and people can buy a ticket to it and like Social West, like the digital marketing conference I run, like it, 800 people came, started coming. The last one we did was 850 people, I think. And it was only four years old and people were coming all across the country and all those things. And, you know, so when I go to Toronto and talk about it, like they sort of can't believe it in a way, like they're like, but I don't understand. And it's sort of like, well, you don't need to be in Toronto. The pandemic sort of proved it. Like you don't need to be in Toronto or Vancouver or any of the major cities to be successful anymore. You can be anywhere and do anything right now. And social at home, what I love about it is that people, you know, our first time we did it last June, we had, you know, people from Nunavut buying tickets. We had people from St. John's buying tickets. And for me, that's the, yeah, the, for me, the purpose of that conference is to teach people really good digital marketing, social media, digital advertising strategies and ideas and things like that. And the government in Nunavut needs that. The government of St. John, a small business in St. John's, Newfoundland needs that information too. And they shouldn't not get it just because they're in sort of trickier places. And so I love that now sort of my focus is the education I can provide to all over Canada. Yeah, that is such a such a great gift. And I think it's it's just amazing to think like a potential Spanish teacher from Fredericton is now <laughs> making this national impact and Kelly Ripa knows who he is. Come on. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Anticulture. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to catch the rest of season four. And if you really enjoyed it, I would really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking to explore more episodes or get in touch with me, visit our website at josiahpodcast.com. Be sure to stay in touch with our guest, Mike Morrison, as well. You can follow Mike's blog adventures at mikesbloggityblog.com or follow Mike on Twitter at Mike's Bloggity. This episode of Anticulture was recorded and edited with the help of We Edit Podcasts at their studio here in Calgary. It was recorded remotely with our guest under current COVID-19 protocols, as our whole season has been. You can check out We Edit Podcasts at weeditpodcasts.com. And if you're looking to support local during this time, you can also become a patron of my show at patreon.com slash josiahpodcast. Every bit helps. 
Be sure to join us next week for a special episode of the show where we will be covering Alberta's Black history with a very special guest. So until next week, thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon.